You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. Serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Country music is quintessentially American, but to many rock fans, it's quintessentially corny. Today, we let a country fan defend her genre with the Rock Fan's Guide to Country Music. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. Stay tuned for that discussion and reviews of the new albums by The Roots and Scissor Sisters, today on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. Time now for some music news. This particular instrument just has qualities um, that uh, I've just fallen in love with playing it for this week. I've experienced falling in love with instruments before, where I've fallen in love with them, and then after a week or so I start to see the weaknesses and I realize that it might have been a shallow infatuation. This violin has been um, quite the opposite. I mean, I fell in love with it at first, but the more I play on it, the more I'm finding uh, qualities in it that, that just that uh, excite me. That is Grammy Award-winning violinist Joshua Bell rhapsodizing about a violin called a Vuitton Guarneri that is currently for sale for a mere $18 million. If it goes for that price, it will be the most expensive instrument ever sold, according to many experts. It has been around for centuries, invented in 1741, very modest beginnings in the town of Cremona in Italy by a craftsman there, and passed on through the centuries that has been played by the greatest violinists in the world in the greatest concert halls. Now it is in Chicago being sold at an asking price of $18 million. Why is it worth so much? What makes this violin so terrific? Let's talk to the man who is currently selling it, Jeffrey Fushi of Bain and Fushi, one of the largest musical antique dealers in the United States. Jeffrey, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Now, you are one of the, if not the, largest dealership in the United States of antique violins, violas, and cellos, and you have got a prize on hand here. Tell us a little bit about what uh, your latest item for sale is. It's known as the Vietum Guarneri del Gesù. Vietum was one of the top two violin virtuosos of the 1800s. He played really virtuosic violin pieces, um, things that most people could not play. And so this was his favorite violin. I had heard about the violin for my entire career. I've been in this field, well, close to 50 years. And so when the owner, who is from London, called me and said, he reached his 80th year, and he said, it's about time for me to turn it over. He entrusted me with the sale, and that was an exciting 
time. Jeffrey, I, I just want to set the scene here. I mean, this is called the Mona Lisa of violins. You're expecting possibly to get as much as $18 million for it? Yes. They, they didn't just, like, uh, send it FedEx, right? How no. does it arrive to you from <laughs> London? How do you open it? And then in what setting did you hear it? Well, my son traveled to Austria to pick it up, and he carried it with him on board the plane and brought it back to Chicago. I, I hope you let him fly first class. No. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't go in the overhead. Don't tell me it went in the overhead. Sure. All right, so $18 million. In your recollection, this seems to be the highest-priced instrument of all time, as far as you can tell. I mean, there's nothing close to this in terms of value? The closest one was sold about five months ago for a little over $10 million. Wow. But when you have the best one, there isn't a comparable, you know. Um, There is a violin... The other greatest one that I've heard, which is being kept by the city of Genoa, and it was the Guarneri violin of Niccolo Paganini. And a few years ago, they said, that's not for sale. But if it was, it would be $40 million. This isn't based on that, but it gives you some perspective. And so for the greatest antique Italian violin that exists, Comparing the price of the violin to artworks, you know, there have been Picassos sold for $100 million or more. It's still, I'd say, a bit of a bargain. <laughs> you know, I wanted to keep it here in Chicago because it's the greatest violin that exists. Have you, have you had any nibbles yet? Is anybody... I have, several. Wow. And I have them underway now, and the owner is very particular also about who gets the violin, and so a few people have been that have had interest have been ruled out. Wow. i got to ask you about those criterion. Like, let's say I walk into your store now with $18 million, you know, banknote, and I say, I really want that violin. I live in Chicago. What do I have to do to qualify to get it? Well, that would mostly be okay. The fellow that was talking about making an offer last year was re- reported to have been Russian mafia. That might not have been <laughs> true. And the owner said, I don't want it going to any mafia people. And uh. I said, well, I agree with you. So it's just yeah. that sort of... See, I think given its origins in Italy, uh, maybe that would be kind of appropriate, you know? <laughs> well, but it's Russian mafia, not Italian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, one of the things I'm fascinated about is is you have to play an instrument counter to what most people would think. Let's put it in a controlled environmental museum glass case. But, but, right, the wood on the neck begins to atrophy and, and crack if you don't actually interact with it, right? Well, no, that's not true. Well, it's a myth, okay. Um, that's a myth. But the thing that I'd say to you is this. The Paganini violin is in a museum in Genoa, but it's usually played publicly a couple of times a year. Let's say in the best case here in Chicago, someone buys the violin and puts it on display at the Art Institute. Well, they have a recital hall at the Art Institute. We could have four or six concerts a year there, but it wouldn't be subjected to daily traveling all around the world the way that concert violinists do. Mm. So that would be the best of both worlds because we'd preserve it and protect it, and people could hear it for several more hundred years. That's what I would believe would be the best case. 
Jeffrey Fushi of Bain and Fushi. I gotta say, I'm uh, holding out. I'm saving my money until you get in a great snare drum down there. But thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions. You're welcome. Thank you. Behaving, spending all of your pay on wine, women, and song. While I'm a making beds, you're out of making time. You rob my piggy bank and spend my last thin dime on wine. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Wine, Women, and Song by country legend Loretta Lynn. And those three things, wine, women, and song, along with pickup trucks, outlaws, and lost dogs, make up some of the biggest cliches of country music. Cliches that give the great American art form a bad rap, especially among certain rock fans. So this week, Jim and I wanted to give country music a second shot. We're joined by Chrissy Dickinson, a music writer and former editor of the Journal of Country Music, for the Rock Fan's Guide to Country Music. Chrissy, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. First, give us just a quick overview of how you would define country music. Yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to define in a way. I had interviewed the country singer Lori Morgan one time, and I asked her, I said, what is country music? And she said, country music is therapy. It's therapy for the rural world, (laughs) uh, which I thought was kind of a good definition as any. In a lot of ways, I mean, that I think maybe is how it started. Country music, you know, is definitely an American art form. It's a root form of music that came from American South and later the Southwest. And to me, it was always a hybrid form of music, you know, very kind of mongrel music. And I mean that in the best sense of the term. When I think about the beginnings of country music as a commercial genre recorded in the 1920s, a lot of things had led up to that. It was string band music jug music, mountain tunes, hollers, gospel music, spirituals, Victorian parlor ballads. Scottish folk ballads. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a really important point. You're talking about this hybrid form because we always talk about these country purists who are upset about what country music has become. But right from the start, it was a mix of many different styles of music. Absolutely. The first big, big selling singles in the 1920s and what people came to think of as country music. At that time, it was called Hillbilly Music by Vernon Dalhart, a very obscure figure today, but he is an inductee in the Country Music Hall of Fame. He uh, did a song in 1924 called The Wreck of the Old 97. It was a massive hit of its day. They give him his orders at Monroe, Virginia, saying, Pete, you're way behind time. This is not 38. But it's old 97, you must putter in center on time. He looked round, says to his black breeze fireman, just shove on in a little more coal. And when we cross that white oak mountain, you can watch your 97 roll. With the massive hit of The Wreck of the Old 97, a lot of the emergent record labels looked at it and said, there's gold in them on our hills. Mm. You know, there's an audience out there for this hillbilly music. Then as now, everybody was looking for a hit. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Chrissy, I'm glad you bring up the commercialization of country because I think that's a big reason why a lot of rock fans dismiss the music, and that, I'd include myself in that. It wasn't until I learned about uh, some of the roots of country that I saw, like, the Carter family was as raw and ragged as the Sex Pistols. So how did we get from that to someone like Shania Twain? I think you have to look at the evolution of almost what we have now is almost 100 years of recorded country music. And when you think about somebody like Patsy Cline. People in the rock world cite her as being one of their favorite country artists. When you listen to Patsy Cline, she was the epitome of, of what was came to be known as the Nashville Sound or Country Politan, which was country's reaction to the emergence of rock and roll. How are we going to survive? Phase out maybe that really twangy stuff, you know, sand down the fiddles and make it more orchestral pop sounding. Mm. You know, when you listen to a lot of Patsy Cline stuff, it's great music, don't get me wrong. But if you played that for somebody, I'm not sure everybody would think that was country music. So by the time you get to somebody like Shania Twain, who was going for pop crossover as well, you can criticize Shania if you think it's a bad pop song. But strictly in terms of doing pop music, I think, well, what goes for Shania would also have to go for Patsy Cline. There's those contradictions within country music, which has kept me intellectually interested in it for so many years, because for every raw side of country music, you're going to get a valid artist who's doing very polished music. In that sense, I would defend a lot of what gets called pop country today, because I can see where it comes from. Yeah, I mean, the country politan sound was a big breaking point, as you said, Chrissy, around the late 50s or early 60s. You started seeing that sound coming in. I'm curious about your entryway into it, because you come from a rock background. You played in punk bands. Yeah, I think in childhood, like a lot of people that are real music heads, I listened to anything I could get my hands on. And I remember, as a kid, country music was in that mix. I remember being... 12, 13 years old and seeing Tanya Tucker when she was 13, you know, like 1972, 73, when she came out with those hits. But I remember hearing this 13-year-old girl with this really strong, heavy twang standing there in this maxi plaid <laughs> dress on the Mike Douglas show singing <laughs> these really weird, bloody, gothic, southern songs. Uh, one that went number one on the country charts at that time, Blood Red and Going Down, and you have to hear that song. I remember at the time hearing that on radio, and it's essentially 
she's this 10-year-old little girl. Her dad realizes the mom has been cheating, so he gets takes the kid, gets in the pickup truck, and he's going to go out and kill the wife and her lover. And, of course, takes his daughter with. And, of course, she's singing it from the perspective of the daughter. It's like an Eminem song. Yeah. Uh, people think Eminem invented this. Yeah. And at the end, you know, she says, you know, something like, sometimes a child of 10 doesn't know exactly what to say, you know, and then he leaves them both dead, soaking up the sawdust on the floor. We searched in every bar room and honky-tonk as well. That just struck me because here was a girl who was around my age, which was thrilling for me at that time, Mm -hmm. singing these really strange songs, and then got into punk heavily. But I remember around, it was around 1990 when my band finally broke up. At that time, around 1990, I remember feeling like rock music at this time, a lot of the indie rock that was coming out, it was no longer speaking to me in the way that a lot of the original punk stuff had. And I found myself, I think, because of a lot of personal loss in my own life, gravitating to country. Country music was so direct and so from the heart. And it was about heartache and it was about loss. Mm -hmm. And they were simple songs. And because a song is simple doesn't mean it's simplistic. I remember that time getting heavily into Merle Haggard. He was a complete revelation to me. And as one writer so put it so well, I mean, nobody wrote about the way men and women come together and blow apart the sensitivity that Merle Haggard did. Today I started loving you again I'm right back where I've really always been I got over you just long enough to let my heartache mend Then today I started loving you again He was really at that Bakersfield sound, which was that real electric, Fender Telecaster-driven sound with the propulsive drums. I mean, I happen to think Merle Haggard is a great place to start, to go forward and back in his influence. With only these few million tears I cried. We're going to continue our Rock Fan's Guide to Country after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later on, we've got new music reviews, and Greg will add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. Because today I started loving you again I'm right back where I've really always been I got over you just long enough to let my heartache Cause today I started loving you 
again Then today I started loving you I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine, I walk the line Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis and our guest, music journalist Chrissy Dickinson, who's helping us with our Rock Fan's Guide to Country Music. Chrissy, we're discussing before the break uh, that before you became the editor of the Journal of Country Music, you started out as a traditional rock fan and musician. You're performing in punk and alternative bands. And then in the early 90s, you experienced your country enlightenment. That's interesting because for a lot of people, that's where country really started to fall off. You know, most of the rock contingent agrees about the merits of artists like Johnny Cash or Hank Williams or Willie Nelson. But as you've come to Nashville around circa 1990, You've got the Hat Act era. You've got Garth Brooks, the big shadow that he cast over what country music would become. You saw the commercial phenomenon of Shania Twain. I think a lot of people where they have start having difficulty with country music coming at it from a rock perspective is exactly that era, that last 20 years. You talk about the rural roots of country music. What I see there is the flowering of the suburbanization of country music, where it really isn't a rural art form anymore. It's kind of a suburban art form, and it's keying off uh, middle-of-the-road 70s rock, you know, the Eagles, Journey, etc. It's not pickup trucks anymore. Yeah. It's SUVs. Yeah. So, so where do you stand there, Chrissy? Because you're editing this Journal of Country Music at this time, and Garth was pretty big. He, he was starting to dominate what that sound would be. The Thunder Road and the lightning strike Another love grows cold On a sleepless night As the storm blows all out of control Deep in her heart The thunder rolls Garth certainly was, I mean, he was so titanic in his arrival. You know, like a lot of things, there's success, and so right away we're going to sign a whole lot of people that sound Mm -hmm. just like that. And there was a lot of disposable acts in that, believe me. There was a lot of well-founded criticism in that. But at the same time, I think a lot of people maybe on the rock side who weren't really carefully listening to a lot of the stuff that was coming out around there that was mainstream country, you would just see an Alan Jackson or a George Strait, and you'd see the hat and the belt buckle and the starched jeans, and you would just assume, well, they suck just like these (laughs) other guys suck. (laughs) And there was an unfairness about that. And I would tell anybody, speaking of Alan Jackson, he debuted in 1989, and that first record here in the real world, that's a great song. But here in the real world, it's not that easy. When hearts get broken It's real tears that fall And darling 
But the one thing I've learned from you is how the boys don't always get the girl here in the real world. When you hear that song, it kicks off with those hard fiddles. He's got steel in there. He was a very, and continues to be such a voice of conscience in Nashville all through his career in the last 20 years. He's really kept very tightly to a fiddle and steel sound. He's got some goosed up blues influences in there and maybe some more modern sound in the production technique. But really, I would consider, when a lot of people talk about hard country artists, I would definitely put Alan Jackson in there. We're talking to our colleague, country music journalist Chrissy Dickinson on Sound Opinions. Chrissy, I remember seeing Winona Judd's very first solo show ever in the 90s. She has this tremendous voice, she's got this big personality, and then the record comes out and it's produced by Tony Brown, who is one of those Nashville super producers, and it just sounded so polite. Yeah, I agree with you. She's somebody that got way too polished, maybe because she was worried about commercial concerns Mm. of what's going to sell. I would love to see some of these artists take more chances. Good things can come out of the studio system as it's practiced on Nashville in the same way that great stuff came out of Motown, sure. you know, which is a very controlled environment. But the danger there is then you, you, you had a day when a lot of the tracks can start to become formulaic. And also there's a lot of fear in the industry. Country radio ruled and it, you know, it was always kind of been a bottleneck what, what can get through there. So I think a lot of artists themselves who maybe would have liked to take more chances found themselves playing it safer. Yeah, but as with rock, an alternative emerged to the mainstream country sound at about the same time. You know, you had bands like Uncle Tupelo and the Jayhawks who wanted to return to country's roots. But you've always been a little bit critical of alternative country. With certain all-country acts that were emerging around that time, and I think there's some, there were some very good ones, but then a lot of what I heard was kind of a mocking of country, doing this kind of faux twangish stuff, <laughs> and also a little too much irony, a little too much preciousness to it. I guess it kind of rankled me because I thought being a true punk means actually listen to stuff, listen to it deeply, really explore it. And ultimately, is it better if something, or, or more real country, if something has more punk roots than if it has pop roots? I don't know. Yeah. What's more authentic, a country singer today who lives in a palatial mansion in the suburbs singing about their SUV or a uh, kid from the Midwest in a punk band singing about being a 19th century coal miner? Mm -hmm. You know, who are you going to believe more, you Mm -hmm. know? And the other thing about the country audience today is that it is one of the few audiences left that actually does buy more physical product than digital product. There's still an allegiance to country radio. So you're still seeing the country sound still living by, playing by the old rules in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any sense of that breaking at all? And what might that lead to in the way country music is presented in, say, the next 10 years? It's hard to predict what's going to happen. You know, part of me feels like, well, is it going to even become more narrow? Because Walmart can only suck so many CDs that it's going to become lesser and only these big superstars or people that can really cross over into the pop market or the rock market. You know, or might it be artists who can't break into the charts or had a career at some point feeling more freed up maybe to go onto an indie label level or maybe distributing their own music because they can't get into a Walmart. Well, Chrissy, let's wrap up our rock guide to country music with some recommendations. You know, say you're coming from that rock perspective and you're still dubious about country music, particularly in the mainstream. Who are some Nashville artists that you think would resonate with people? You know, Faith Hill, who again has a very mixed discography, but 
I had gone back and listened to her second record that yeah. came out in 1995. It matters to me. And it's a country pop record. So for a rock audience going to that, they might be put off by some of that. But for those people who could look back and say, you know, hey, I used to love Lynn Anderson singing Rose yeah. Garden. I right. never promised you a Rose Garden. Or Jeannie Pruitt singing Satin Sheets. When I listened to it, I was really surprised how fresh and good it, she sounded in 1995 because her twang was still very heavy, mm. you know, that uh, Mississippi accent. And she had a lot of the vulnerability that Tammy Wynette had. There's one in particular on there that was written by Alan Jackson. I can't do that anymore. And it's it's a very kind of country-politan kind of production. But at the same time, it's really from this, really from the heart in this Tammy Wynettean way of a woman you know, singing about this sadness at the core of her life and the sadness in the marriage. Now you say I'm being silly, but you don't know me really. You never take the time to ask me how I feel. I keep the checkbook balanced. I decorate your palace. You know I used to think that you were Somewhere down deep I know you really love me But you can see that what we have's not all I needed I keep on giving But I can't stop living A woman needs a little something of her You say Faith Hill. Anyone else excite you as a listener? Well, in addition to George Strait and Alan Jackson, I would point to Vince Gill. He's on the downswing of, of a once big commercial career. Mm. But I think in some ways he was making the best music of his life over the last decade. And in 2002, he put out a terrific record called Next Big Thing. And one of the songs on there is called Young Man's Town. Emmylou Harris sings background on it. It's a beautiful tune. And at the heart of the songs, basically, he's a guy whose heyday has passed. And he realizes this town has left me by. And one day you wake up and, wow, it's over. And you didn't see it coming. And I think you could apply it not just to a music career or to Nashville as a town, but to anyone in life, you know, these, these feelings of aging. Don't know when and you don't know why. Clapton is another guy who's a Vince Gill fan. I mean, you see Gill showing up at these Crossroads festivals, and a lot of the, the rock contingent is kind of like, who's this guy? Mm-hmm. And he's probably sold more records than most of the people up on that stage, you know? They don't know, but he's a great guitar player as well. Mm-hmm. 
great guitar slinger. You know, he played Nemi Lou Harris's hot band. He was known as, as one of the great guitar players in Nashville. If the road had gone into a different direction for Vince, he could have easily become an A-team session player down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, you know, his good pal, as you described him, super producer, Nashville producer Tony <laughs> Brown, you know, another guy who had a serious history, played with Emma Lou Harris, played with a lot of played with Elvis, went on to become a real mover and shaker in Nashville in the 80s and got a lot of his friends on board, Vince Gill being one of them that benefited from that and had the big solo career. And even during Vince's solo career, there was a lot of stuff I didn't care for. A lot of it was a little too polished for me. And I almost think this latter-day Vince Gill, now that he sort of has that burden lifted of trying to get hits anymore, I think he's really kind of coming into his own as a player and as a songwriter. And you gotta face it, it's a young man's town. It's a young man's town. Music writer Chrissy Dickinson has been schooling us unrepentant rock fans on country music. Chrissy, thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions. Oh, it's been absolutely wonderful to be here. Thank you very much. Next up, Greg, we've got some album reviews. listen to Sound Opinions, and that is the title song, How I Got Over, from the ninth studio album by The Roots, a Philadelphia hip-hop ensemble that may be the most popular, certainly the best-known hip-hop group in America right now because of their nightly stint on network television as the house band for Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Meanwhile, their recording career continues apace. It uh, began in the late 80s out of Philly. You had the MC Black Thought and the great drummer Amir Questlove Thompson co-founding this group. They were part of that street philosopher trend in the East Coast hip-hop scene of the late 80s, early 90s, sort of drawing back to the African griots and the last poets out in L.A., Gil Scott Heron, those records from the 70s, sort of extending that tradition of using hip-hop as a forum for talking about what was going on in everyday life in the African-American community. Meanwhile, they had a number of records that continued to gain critical acclaim, a few million sellers in there. Amir Questlove Thompson became one of the most in-demand producers in the scene, not only in hip-hop, but as part of the neo-soul movement. He's worked with artists like D'Angelo and Common and Erica Badu. Right now with this late-night TV gig, you think, are they kind of distracted? Can they continue to make quality albums? Well, we're going to review how I got over it in a minute, but let's play a track from it first. It's called Dear God 2.0. Some of you may recognize the voice on this track. It is, in fact, Jim James of My Morning Jacket. It is taken from a record he did with Monsters of Folk last year, that collaboration he did with Connor Oberst and M. Ward. The Roots appropriated it for this song, updated it for their own purposes. Dear God 2.0 by The Roots on Sound Opinions. Uh-huh. They said he's busy, hold the line, please Call me crazy, I thought maybe he could mind read Who does the blind lead? Show me a sign, please If everything is made in China, are we Chinese? And why do haters separate us like we Siamese? Technology turning the planet into zombies Everybody all in everybody's dirty laundry Acid rain, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis Terrorists, crime sprees, assaults and robberies Cops yelling, stop, freeze, shoot them for me, try to leave Air quality so free 
foul. I gotta try to breathe. Endangered species, and we running out of trees. If I could hold the world in the palm of these hands, I would probably do away with these anomalies. Everybody checking for the new award nominees. Wars and atrocities. Look at all the poverty. Ignoring the prophecies. More beef and broccoli. Corporate monopoly. Weak world economy. Stock market toppling. Mad marijuana. Oxycontin and Kalanapin. Everybody out of it. Out of it. That is Dear God 2.0 from the new Roots album, How I Got Over, here on Sound Opinions. Greg, I have long loved this band, and I have long been frustrated by the pop culture shorthand reference to them, greatest live band in hip-hop. That pays short shrift to how brilliant they've been on album when they've been at their very best. I would list Phrenology from 2002, and especially the album that preceded it, Things Fall Apart from 99, as two of the best hip-hop albums ever, period. The last two Roots albums were kind of downbeat. They were in a dark mood, Rising Down and Game Theory. Were not bad records, certainly. I gave them three and a half stars on the Sun-Times four-star scale. But for the first time, I started to think the band was repeating itself. I didn't have high hopes with their new role, you know, Doc Severinsen of the new millennium. Okay, fine, but but are they still going to make great records? They have made a brilliant record. You hear on that song we just played, Black Thought turning to one of the oldest tropes in pop music songwriting. You write a letter to God to complain about all the things wrong in the world. And he is on fire as he gets through, you know, acid rain, earthquake, hurricanes, right? right, right. And it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. Corporate monopoly, weak world economy, stock market toppling, mad marijuana, oxycontin and clonopin, everybody's out of it. The Roots throughout their career have been talking about we need to come together as a community number one. And number two, we need to believe that each of us has the power to lift ourselves out of our current circumstances. That is how we get to the new world. It's an inspiring message. It never gets old. This album starts dark. There's a turning point right at the title track, which is a gospel song that Mahalia Jackson made famous. And then it becomes something else. It starts to be a message of self-empowerment that is truly, truly inspiring. I love this album. It's a buy it record. I'd agree with you, Jim. It is a very good Roots record. I mean, you mentioned that they were kind of down and dark in uh, the last couple of records. Well, I would say they were positively seething on Rising Down. That was a very angry record coming at the tail end of the Bush administration. I think there was a lot of pent-up anger about what was going on in the African-American community at that time, but also in the world at large. This group has never failed to look out at the world and tell us exactly what it sees. Black Thought in particular, I think an extremely underrated MC. He never gets his props as being one of the top MCs of the last two decades. On this record, the first half of the record starts off in that melancholy vein. It definitely picks up where Rising Down left off. Dear God 2.0 is about as existential as it gets. (laughs) God, dear God, why have you abandoned us down here? But as you said, it does turn for the brightness at the end of the record. And the beats get heavier. I love when Questlove starts really slamming those beats. Instead of that sort of trip-hoppy vibe we get in the first half of the record, we get a much more pronounced, upbeat 
vibe in the second half of the record. So it, it's a new day for The Roots. I love the fact that they turned this record around and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel at the end of it. I'm with you. It's a buy it record all the way. A very enthusiastic double buy it for The Roots' new album, How I Got Over. We want to hear your critical opinions on The Roots, country music, or anything else in the musical universe. Call 888-859-1800 and we'll put your message on the air. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook or Twitter. We're going to be back with a review of the latest from the disco band Scissor Sisters plus Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. I'm Jim DeRogatis, he's Greg Cott, and those are Scissor Sisters with the song Fire With Fire from Nightwork, their third album. Greg, the uh, Scissor Sisters burst onto the scene in the early 2000s, part performance art project, part burlesque troupe, and part loving musical homage to the underrated artistry of the disco era. (laughs) We did a show about that not that long ago. People loved it. Yes, there was good music in the disco era. Scissor Sisters pick and choose from a lot of it, and that's how they started making their name. Really, three New York artists, vocalist Jake Shears, who does the best uh, Leo Sayer high falsetto vocal since since Leo Sayer, animatronic, and the multi-instrumentalist synth wizard Baby Daddy. They really hit big in 2004 with a single covering Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb in the style of the Saturday Night Fever Bee Gees. Huge hit in England. These guys were as big as Muse in the UK Mm. in their time. They remained a cult act in the United States. We reviewed their uh, second album, Tada, in 2006. By that point, they were kind of going into the camp territory. The formula was kind of going off the rails. 
They had a lot of trouble making this third album. They made and recorded and finished one entire version of it before giving up, trashing it, and hiring dance pop hitmaker for hire, Stuart Price. He's known for his work with Madonna, Kylie Minogue, The Killers. They went to Berlin. They got inspiration from the Berlin Underground. Mm. They made a whole new album, and now here it comes, Nightwork. Let's play a song from it, and then we'll come back and give our opinion. This is a song featuring animatronic. It's called Skin This Cat by Scissor Sisters on Sound Opinions. this cat from the Scissor Sisters third studio album Nightwork. Jim, I have a theory about why they scrapped this album, because they're running out of ideas. They went running to Stuart Price, who has been working with a number of electro-pop bands in the similar vein. New Order, Kylie Minogue, Madonna, Missy Elliott, The Killers, Gwen Stefani, Seal. He is a producer for hire. When you want to make frothy dance pop, Stuart Price is the guy you go to. Scissor Sisters make frothy dance pop. They've done it for three albums now. It's a nice one-trick pony band, kind of out of a tradition of Erasure and Bronsky Beat and Pet Shop Boys, all UK bands, by the way, from the the 80s. They're referencing a lot of 80s bands and songs. You've got the Beach Boys falsetto. You've got the Judas Priest rock guitars in Harder You Get. Even sort of a a Rob Halford-type vocal on that song. You've got a little bit of Talking Heads, the new wave groove on on a song like Running Out, Human League, all over this record. Okay, it's good, frothy stuff. They don't really have anything to say other than some very overt sexual come-ons. It used to be sort of double entendres. Now they're single entendres. They're, They're more overt about it on this record. Okay, I get the idea. I kind of like the first record. I sort of kind of like the second record. This record kind of bores me, frankly. You know, at best, it is a burn it record. That's a bit of revisionist history because we fought mightily over the merits of the second album. And, and I think that your whole wind up there, well, you were expecting me to defend this record yeah. because I have been a bigger Scissor Sisters fan than you. This record stinks. It, it's pretty mediocre. Mm. 
effort. I'm let down when they do those kind of Elton John ballads like the one that we started this segment with. They're not on, on the money. When they do a good, you know, disco homage, that, that's fine. But now, after three albums of it, we've heard it. It's old. It's tired. And then you write a loving ballad in tribute to condoms. Wow. <laughs> uh, you're, you're at the end here, Scissor Sisters. I got to say, buy it, burn it, trash it. It is a trash it for me, and you were being kind with your burn it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just across the way, island lost the sea. Now I'm stranded on my own. Stranded far from home. Come on. Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Stranded out so far from home. Stranded, yeah, I'm on my own. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the Desert Island Jukebox and play a song that we can't live without. Greg, what do you got for us? Jim, inspired by our conversation with my old colleague Chrissy Dickinson about uh, country music, I think about my epiphanies about country music. You know, again, coming at it from a rock fan's perspective, not quite getting it, then sitting down with a, a true expert in the field like Jimmy Dale Gilmore, who now lives in Austin, Texas, and is one of the true progenitors of what is known as alternative country. Back when Jimmy Dale Gilmore was starting out alongside Butch Hancock and Joe Ely in West Texas, they didn't really have a name for the kind of music they were doing. But frankly, they were referencing early country music and bringing it up to date for the rock generation. Those three musicians, artists, got together originally in Lubbock, Texas, ended up in Austin eventually, but they were considered the Flatlanders. In fact, that was the derisive term used for them when they went to a Nashville recording studio to record their one and only album for several decades, their 1972 debut, which became known as More a Legend Than a Band. It was available only on 8-track. That's how little their record company thought of this record. (laughs) They go, this has no chance of selling. What they were doing was a hybrid of Hancock's folk, Ely's rock, and Gilmore's country, and creating their own sound. Some people described it as sounding like like it belonged on a scratchy 78 RPM record. It could have made in the 20s and 30s. It was kind of very rustic sounding. There were no drums on the record. Uh, All stringed instruments, except for this one weird touch. A friend of theirs named Steve Wesson was playing a musical saw. It sounded like a woman's voice alongside Gilmore's warble on this record. Gave it a whole psychedelic feel. That combined with the metaphysical lyrics. I mean, these guys were talking about some heavy stuff influenced by Eastern philosophy and the Beat Generation writers, bringing it all together in this wonderful record that was discovered by subsequent generations and used as a touchstone. You know, when you think about bands like Uncle Tupelo and Jayhawks and the old 97s and that whole boom of alternative country in the late 80s, early 90s, well, this record anticipated that movement by about 20 years. I'm going to play the lead track on the album, and it's still one of the most famous songs. Gilmore wrote it. He's the lead vocalist on it. Ely and Hancock are backing him up. That musical saw is singing alongside Gilmore on this song. It just gives it a whole otherworldly feel. There's nothing really like it in country music, and yet it is a quintessential, in many ways, country song. Dallas by the Flatlanders on Sound Opinions. Did you ever see Dallas from a BC nine at night? Well, Dallas is a jewel, oh yeah, Dallas is a beautiful sight. 
That was Dallas by the Flatlanders on Sound Opinion's Greg's Desert Island Jukebox Pick for the week. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Jim, we're going to have some fun next week. Uh, We're going to talk about careers that went off the rails, promising careers that suddenly turned disastrous. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Jason Saldana, kind of the Johnny Cash of this unit, (laughs) and Robin Lynn, who is the Loretta Lynn. And, of course, our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He's kind of the mini pearl. (laughs) On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hey guys, this is Joe from New York calling and I just listened to your Guilty Pleasures episode and my only comment would be that I didn't think these Guilty Pleasures were quite guilty enough. You know, Patches and Girls Just Want to Have Fun and MacArthur Park, those are all pretty acceptable, I'd say, in the realm of popular music. How about something like the Electric Slide or Celine Dion's uh, To Love You More? Now, those are guilty pleasures. Those are the songs that come up on my iPod, and I have to shield it from uh, other riders on the subway. Keep up the great work, guys. Hi, Sound Opinion. I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed listening to the interview with Chrissy Hines and her soccer-playing boyfriend. That was the most bizarre interview slash song session that I've ever heard in my life. It was funny to me to, to hear her kind of airing out this clear midlife crisis love affair. <laughs> 
Anyway, thanks. Bye. Hey, Jim and Greg. It's Dan in Chicago. I'm calling about your interview with Chrissy Hind and her gravel voice boy toy that was a really funny interview for a couple of reasons. First, it just seems so pompous when she kind of came down on Jim because he hadn't seen that vampire movie. But then she claimed not to have any knowledge of Once, which was a really popular European movie from a couple of years ago that won an Oscar for Best Song, and they've been touring on it ever since. So that just seems kind of strange. But the best, far, the best part of the interview by far was their song, Perfect Lover, because it was like the total perfect cougar anthem. It sounded like a mix between Flight of the Concords, Barry White, and the Will Ferrell Lover's Hot Tub skit on Saturday Night Live. My favorite part was when the guy was throwing off these Barry White-style comments on the song, and he growls. You're like a little girl and sit on daddy's lap. I talk too much and laugh too loud. Cause suffering and trouble. You're like a little girl. I fantasize and criticize from my house of ash and rubble. Sit on daddy's lap. I know I've caused great harm with these jinxes in my head. Keep that gypsy from my bed. I found perfect lover. So keep it up. I love your show and look forward to hearing more. Hi, guys. This is Barry from Philadelphia. I'm calling with a couple of comments. First, with regard to Dazed and Confused, uh, there was an album in circulation briefly called Live Yard Birds featuring Jimmy Page. And uh, Epic Records released it, then it was withdrawn, then Columbia Special Products released it, then it was withdrawn each time by Jimmy Page's insistence. But the point is that it had a version of Dazed and Confused on it, sung by Keith Ralph with Jimmy Page on lead guitar. And that version was much, much closer to Jake Holmes's version. I'm dazed and confused, as it say as it go. I'm being abused and I think I should go Regarding what Nelson George said about Michael Jackson's thriller long-form video really having an influence on the home video market in terms of video sell-through, in fact, Vestron Video did so well with it that eventually the record labels wised up and started their own in-house home video divisions, including Sony. Okay, thanks, guys. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.